This is why we love racing in all its forms. That's King of Swing fighting though. He's a superstar, a champion pacer. Untapped in front, untapped holding on. What a win! Untapped from the Harrison Sandler Cup. And it's very elegant. Ten group bumps. And now the greatest of them all, the Melbourne Cup. For the next hour, RSN is cracking the codes. Morning, everyone, and welcome to Cracking the Codes in what is absolute prime time for one of the three codes in horse racing. There's always something going on in the other codes as well, so let's get straight into it. Simone and Dan, how are we? Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Derby Day. Derby Day. Derby Day. Cup Week. Mm. Mm. Melbourne Cup Tuesday. Always a great race to look forward to, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. What's your favourite day? Like for, of, of the, the four? four? No, yeah. It might become Champions Day because they're really working on it. And remember the old days when. It was I'm always a, my favourite day, the final day. Yeah, it was, and it was always a laid-back sort of... I, such is the change and the, the sort of the moving flow of Cup Week that I remember driving into finals day one day and it was so small compared to the other. They were taking down all the marquees on race morning because yeah. they knew that there was... Well, it was Kids' Day. It was yeah. promoted as Kids' Day, Family Day, and now it's Champions Day, and I think that's appropriate to uh, uh, end uh, what this year, I think, will... Um, Show us, it's a bumper week. It's something that most Melbournians, Victorians, Australians have missed out on over the last few weeks. So it will, will be interesting to see they, they, the way they vote with their feet. I think it'll be spectacular. Absolutely. It's going to be a marathon. Oh, that sounds like a segue. Oh. Mm. Why would I have said that, Dan? I don't know. Why? Um, our guest this morning, Kate Gatt's going to join us in just a moment. And also John Hutchison, Simone. Yeah, John Hutchison, we spoke to him uh, probably about six months ago. He is he started up and got the Political Party Companions and Pets Party registered. So very interesting for everyone in the racing fraternity to have a listen to John and hear what the Companion and Pets means to you as a racing participant and also an animal and pet owner. So looking forward to hearing from John. Um, I just wanted to say, Dan Melton on Wednesday... I was swabbing there. I love it. I love swabbing out in the stables and, um, you know, talking to the trainers and, and all of that. But how was it? Katrina Fitzpatrick, um, <laughs> her horse, Kai Valley Surf Rider. Um, Chris Alford was driving. He's a lovely horse. It was her first Melton win ever. And yeah. you would have thought that she won the Melbourne Cup. I was waiting for her to break into a yodel. I was going to say, this is the yodel. Oh, she's... Her exuberance and her excitement, and anyone that was in arm's reach got a hug off Katrina back oh, yeah. in the stabling area, and you could hear her, and she was so wrapped and thrilled and everything else. And then she messaged me and said, oh, your dog's just won at Ballarat. I'm at Ballarat Greyhounds as yeah. well. So her and her husband were at Ballarat Greyhounds. So a big day for Katrina, but just... So the way she to celebrates too. I've seen her one day run the whole length of the straight at a venue, uh, and the other day, if you didn't know Katrina, you would have thought someone was getting attacked because uh, her <laughs> yelling and her emotion uh, is very similar to someone that uh, is, uh, yeah, being attacked by somebody. So um, I think if you imagine ringing nine one one nine one one, hello, what can yeah. you report? I have yeah. no idea. There's a yodeling attacker. <laughs> yeah, and of course on Derby Day, it's hard not to be nostalgic and look back on some of the great derbies. And this might be one of the best. Caraman has gone up very quickly on the outside and is being tackled wider on the track by Horberg and they were followed further away in the field then by Dulcify who's starting to come home well. Just a seal in behind them followed by Turf Ruler and back behind them with Thrust about 250 to go and Caraman is clear now from Horberg and Turf Ruler coming again and Dulcify starting to fly home. Dulcify is out after Caraman. Dulcify going home the better got to the lead close to home and Dulcify will win the derby. Dulcify has won by little over length to Caraman. Turf it was an amazing 12 months for Dulcify, wasn't it, uh, Matt, coming out to win the Australian Cup in the autumn, the Cox Plate the next spring, and, well, we know how the uh, that story ended uh, on Cup Day of 1979. Um, Sunday, the 6th of November, the New York Marathon is going to be run, and in a way, I think we all feel like we're going to be a part of it because our next guest is running. Um, it's a, a bit of a dream, a lifetime ambition uh, as a long-distance runner, but also running on behalf of the EB Foundation. And I speak of Kate Gath, who is our first guest. Thanks for joining us, Kate. You've got a big couple of weeks coming up. Yeah, pretty busy, and thanks for having me. Well, you're going to run in the New York Marathon, and I think uh, we broke that news, didn't we, on Cracking the Codes at some stage earlier on in the year? I can't remember what show it was, but uh, I know I got a giggle out of you at the time because I don't think you had even made up your mind. But let's set up the situation. Um, 
you are a long distance runner and uh, you've been training uh, for long distance running for a long time, but in particular for this New York Marathon through the course of this year. Tell us how it come about and who you're running for. Um, I know it's a great cause, but there's a terrific tie into harness racing here. Yeah, there is. Um, so it came about um, quite a fair while ago now. I think it was, um, you know, Christmas um, last year, and um, I was approached, approached by um, EB Research Australia to um, run the New York Marathon to raise funds for um, EB, which is epidermiosis bullosa, which is a skin condition. And basically, babies are born without the protein that binds their skin together, and so their skin just peels off and um, they can't play in playgrounds, they're covered in bandages, um, their parents can't even pick them up um, as their skin just, you know, <laughs> just, just flakes off. It's, um, it's, really, it's a really horrible disease and it's just, like, awful to watch and, you know, agonisingly painful for, for the babies and, you know, there's milder forms um, that are bad enough but the extreme forms affect your organs, internal organs as well. So those people don't live very long and, um, yeah, it's just, it's not. It's only about a thousand people with it in Australia, so it's quite rare. Rare, and um, it's the reason that um, most of us haven't heard of it until now. Our mate Juddy from Ben Park's daughter has this Kendall. condition. K- Kendall, yeah, that's right, Kate, isn't it? Was it was this inspired a little bit by Kendall's story as and well? Tilly, Tilly Wilkes, tough yeah. Tilly, yeah, yeah. So um, I hadn't. Um, so Craig Judd, um, yeah, put me on tough Tilly when she started racing. Um, and Craig Judd is, you know, from Ben Sandbred, who owns it, and his daughter, yes, did have this, does have this condition, and she's older now, and it's it's not not as bad. But he, through that, he knows uh, he knew Corey Wilkes, who is the father of Tilly Wilkes, and um, when um, Tilly was born, her parents like just wanted to do everything they, you know, they could to find a cure and, and raise funds, and so they started, um, you know, uh, the Cotton Ball and a lot of huge fundraisers. Um, around Australia to try and raise funds to find a cure. And, yeah, it was through that association with, you know, firstly Craig and then Tough Tilly and then Corey Wilkes and, and his daughter Tilly, um, who Tough Tilly is named after, that this has all come about. And it's been such a great ride. When um, Juddy got in touch with me, uh, when they were... They were putting that chair up for sale, so they auctioned it off at the... Uh, is it the Cotton Ball, did you say it was... Kate, I but, think it was there. Yeah. They auctioned it off. Yeah, and they, he had me do a phantom call. Now she was a, a yearling at the time, so uh, I did a phantom call, and they'd already named her. They'd already worked out, you know, what the name was going to be. And um, I've called uh, Tough Tilly winning the Breeders' Crown Group One final. How yeah. ominous! More than twelve months before it actually happened. Did you know that, Kate? No, I didn't. I didn't know that. Actually, I didn't know that at all, Dan. Can you tell us yeah. about our futures too, Dan? Well, <laughs> yeah, don't, I don't want to know about is mine because I've got this weird... Fi- yeah, so is Kate, gonna, is Kate going to nail I'm it? not Nostradamus. So, Kate, you're going to run 417th. Are you still going? I was asked to do it that way. It wasn't actually my original idea. I can't take any uh, or all of the credit for it, but... Um, uh, Craig did uh, want to do it that way, and uh, so I uh, adhered to the request, and, and that is a true story. It's quite remarkable it's because bizarre. you didn't just beat any average horses when you won that race. No. Um, as as Corey said, um, Corey Wilkes, Tilly's dad, um, you just couldn't have scripted this better. Like, it's really hard to find, you know, good horses and, and you know, um, to be in good horses and, and for this, you know, tough Tilly EB syndicate um, that owns... Um, that owns, you know, part of, of Tough Tilly. Um, it's just been such a fun ride and, and raised so much awareness. And um, lucky for me, Corey and the syndicate, the EB um, syndicate that owns part of Tough Tilly, have donated $10,000 to my New York uh, marathon run. And Craig Jard from Ben Sud has donated 5000 So it's, you know, massive of them to contribute so much, but obviously for something that's affected them, um, you know, so much in their life and, and their children as well. He's a good guy, Craig Judd, isn't he? We oh, met he's him a legend. At, met him at Mildura. No, Echuca it was um, last year at the Echuca yeah. Cup. But And Tough Tilly and Kate Gath were the combination that inspired Darcy to take up pony trots. Well, and, there you go. Yeah, so there's a bit more oh, to wow. Tough Yeah, it was Hunter Cup night last year, Kate, and she saw you go past and um, she said, I want to do that. So. She'll, give you, she'll give you a windburn one day, Kate. You'll regret it. <laughs> I know. Uh, I don't know about that. She'll give, much better than me. She'll give you a lip. I know that much. She'll give you some cheeks. She, she is a bit of a troublesome child, isn't she? 
in that respect. But, hey, Kate, you're a regular site trotting around Long Forest Road and Lake Merrimew. You, you, you're always active and obviously, in, in a way, subconsciously preparing for something like this that's now occurred with the New York Marathon. I've always been fascinated by Boston and New York and all these great marathons about the process and there's registration and then there's the field size. How do you go about um, getting a gig in the, in the famous New York Marathon? Yeah, so it comes down um, to time and you have to have ran a time in a marathon um, 12 months prior that qualifies you for it. And so the times are like they're in age groups. So um, there's like, you know, um, they start younger and then there's like a 30 to 39, then a 40 to like, you know, 49 and, and stuff like that. But because I'm doing it through, they give so many slots to charities every year. And I think it's like 50 or 60,000 people that run it. And so they give so many slots to charity. So I didn't have to run a particular time um, to get into the New York Marathon because I'm running it for a charity. So so um, I was lucky enough to just, it's, like you said, it's really hard to get a slot. And my time in the Melbourne Marathon last year, um, if I was a year older, if I was 40, I would have got into the New York Marathon on that time. But being only 39, I would have just missed out. So I'm lucky for the charity and it's such a, you know, um, once in a lifetime experience, so um, and to raise money while doing it, just seems so good. Oh, I could just imagine, you know, you're going up at that time and say, "Yeah, I'm forty. I'm really forty. No one's going to believe you, Kate." So, <laughs> I believe Andy, but not Kate. No, that's exactly uh, right. Hey, Kate, so the process again, like the the, the lining up, the field, the, the 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 presentation of yourself on the day, and getting to the starting lot. How does it work with these big marathons, like? How long before the start of the race do you have to assemble, for instance, and how does it all play out on the day? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. So um, you had to even register a time to pick up your um, bib from um, New York when you get there. So because there's so many people running it, you actually had to pick a day and a time because they can't have everyone turning up at once. Um, Just quickly, how many people do run in it? I think it's like 50,000. Like, it's massive compared to, like... Public I thought you were going to say 500. <laughs> so they actually have, they actually have um, five ways, so five different start times. So they'll start with, like, professional runners, and then there'll be, like, wave one, which is the next fastest, wave two, wave three, wave four, and wave five. And the time difference between all of them is, like, you know, I think the elites go at, like, 8.40, and then this, the last wave goes at, like, 11 o'clock. So it's such a big time. So I really hope I'm not in the last wave. Um, hopefully that's for like the 60, 70, 50 year olds. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, because it's, it's so different to ours here because ours are so much smaller that you just, you know, you'll have like, you all go at the same time. You just line up in your different sections from fastest down and you just all go. But because there's so many people there, you literally couldn't let, you know, 50,000 people run all at once. So um, it's, it's really interesting. And also you had to book your transport to get um, out there. So there were buses and there were so many buses, but if you didn't get on the bus, you had to catch a ferry because you start in Staten Island and you finish in Central Park. So, um, it's, yeah, it's going to be so much fun. And I think there's like five bridges you have to contend with, which I'm not really looking for. Well, I think you to. start on one, so 50,000 oh. on that bridge. And all these <laughs> iconic... Places in New York too, like there'll be the Brooklyn Bridge and the East well, River. All five and... boroughs. They run through yeah. all five New York boroughs. Well, take us through the course, Kate, because everyone is, who hasn't been to New York is fascinated about this sort of journey through New York. So take us through the journey of the marathon. What, where do you go? Um, yeah, so like I said, you start at Staten Island and you start on that bridge, Navarro, or some huge, huge bridge. I looked at the elevation map as well. So the first bridge looks like the biggest. The others don't look as bad. But then you, um, yeah, you go through like all five boroughs and then you come into halfway and the crowd must start literally at halfway, so at like the 20k mark. And um, and um, I was I was watching um, a video of a, a guy who ran it and won it, but this year, what the, this year he's referring to wasn't the year he ran it, it was his first year in it. And he got through halfway and he heard the crowd, so he just started hammering didn't realise how far he had to go. So um, apparently the crowd's huge and there's bands playing on the street and it's just like uh, Jonathan Brown did it for TV research a few years back and he said he's never experienced, um, you know, anything like it. Um, But I think the last, and the run home, the last few Ks into Central Park, I haven't been to New York before, but um, I think it's from Manhattan up like to Central Park, it's it's a fair rise. So it's apparently, it's a pretty brutal course and not one that... um, anyone aims to get a faster time on. It's just pretty brutal on the body and 
um, yeah, I think Jonathan Brown had to get home and have surgery after it. So he really stuffed himself up. So um, we just want to get through it and um, and finish and, um, you know, and raise as, as many funds as we can for EB. What sort of training have you had to do, Kate? Have you had to do a lot more than Melbourne? You know what to expect now. And I suppose with Melbourne, you, you go in a little bit, you think you're prepared enough. Were you? And do you think you're prepared enough for New York? Or is it still so much of an unknown that you're just going to go out there and do your best? Um, no, I actually got a coach back in March. So the first marathon I did last year, I just Googled my way through it and did nothing by the book in hindsight. Like, I don't know how I got through it. But um, so I got a coach back in March. So I had a really good foundation, um, you know, leading in. And then you do what's like called, you know, a 10-week block, um, 10 weeks out from the marathon where you really step it up. And that was virtually when I got injured. So um, I've never been injured before, never had any trouble. So first I had... Um, a little bit of hip trouble and then then my knee and then my hip wasn't great again. So anyway, we ended up getting them both cortisoned and but so far so good for the last sort of four or five weeks I've got to, you know, up my training. But I did I did miss about five weeks of like I've been on the bike all the time cross training but I just I just couldn't run. And um that was not ideal and I was getting a little bit <laughs> stressed out about that and um, worried about making it but it seems good now and um, the cortisone's helped and it should get me through and um, you know I just I haven't had as good as in terms of long runs like before Melbourne I you know ran 32 34 36 like three weeks in a row before I tapered and this time I've only sort of been out of run I've only been you know sort of was running 26 and then last week I did you know um, 33 um, which I sort of handled okay, and I ran them up and back through the cutting, which is pretty brutal trying to get myself used to the heels when I get there. So um, ideally, I'd like it to be another month away where I could get a couple of more, you know, really long runs in. But I had a really good foundation, like, for the last six or seven months. So, um, you know, and I did a lot of um, heel sprints and sprint work and work that I never did when I trained myself. So I'm hoping, you know, that'll carry me through. But obviously, it's not the most ideal preparation. But um, hopefully, we just get there and my legs are all good and everything's good and um, we can just get it done. I think the cutting you're referring to, because I'm a Bacchus Martian, is the one, is that the one, is it Anthony's cutting or? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's brutal in a car, let alone uh, running it. Yeah. Hey, there's so many swirling emotions that I imagine you, you, first time in New York would be an amazing sense of anticipation. Running the marathon and. And obviously with the charity element as well, it's such an enormous odyssey that you're on going to. What are you going to do either side? Are you going to give yourself a little break either side? Is there something else to look forward to pre or post the marathon? Um, yeah, so we're leaving on Monday. So I'm taking, um, going with a couple of friends, Marie and Lauren Cowdo. And Marie will get me to the start line because otherwise I probably wouldn't be capable of getting myself there. And um, we leave on Monday and we're going to, you know, try and fit all the sightseeing things we can fit in um, leading up to it then the marathon's on the Sunday and then I fly back on the Tuesday because um, sort of Breeders Crown time and, and semi-final time on that weekend so um, we need to get back to that and um, you know not miss out on too much so it wasn't the most ideal time but it's not horrendous so um, and being such a you know great experience once in a lifetime experience we just sort of thought it was it was a must and um, you know it's just something that um yeah, I've, I've wanted to see New York for a long time and I've, I've never really travelled much and um, it's just a great opportunity to do both at once and hopefully not be too nervous the week out thinking, <laughs> seeing the course and, and thinking, I hope I can finish it. So hopefully we can enjoy the week leading up to it. Well, it sounded like just starting it might be the trick. Um, there's an episode of Seinfeld and I know your husband Andy he loves Seinfeld, uh, the episode where Elaine is looking after the um, setting the alarm. runner and setting the alarm for the New York Marathon. It was, Kate, I don't know if you've seen that episode or Andy has told you about it, but it's very funny. And yeah. uh, it's all about the uh, the athlete getting to the start time, uh, and he doesn't. So it didn't well, end up well. Didn't the car backfire in an episode? That was when he money? was racing the kid from school. That oh. he, they had the long-standing sort of. That's, yeah, that was so. a different episode. Now, Kate, I've uh, as you well know, I'm pretty well versed in the in the reptile ranks. I'm not sure how well that come across or as good as I would have liked to, but there's only one venomous snake that is occasionally found in New York City, and that's one of their variants of the copperhead. Now, 
<laughs> I don't going? think you've got as much to worry about. Kate, tell us the story, just to remind us. I know I've asked you before, both privately and and, uh, and publicly, about your incident with the snake when you were doing your training on the road. Yeah. Um, I don't love snakes. I grew up with, surrounded by them in Port Pirie. Um, they were just everywhere, all over the track. Like, So and I've always had a bit of a fear of them. I don't know why. But um, anyway, because they're, they're deadly. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> some people don't, don't they don't bother them. I, I just stay away from them. But I really don't like them. And um, there was one sort of just, um, well, I actually just you know um, had a dog bite my ankle and, and and a bird swooped me as well. And then I was turning around to look at the bird, I think it was a magpie, and, and um, so it wouldn't get me. And then as I turned back in front of me, there was this like massive snake just laying on the road, like just sunbaking on the side of the road, right where I was running. And instead of, like, stopping to the other side of the road and running around it, because that was still way too close for my liking, I was like, I can't do that. I double-backed and flagged down a car that was heading towards me and jumped in his car and said, can you just drive me past that snake there and then let me out? And the guy must have thought I was completely nuts. But I did it. It was like an old painter's view. Like, God knows what, you know, he, he was he was probably thinking I was off my head. But he did see the snake, so he knew it was legit. And Did he uh, run over it on the way past? Or? I, said, you can, I said, no, he didn't. I'm like, you can run over it. But he actually didn't. <laughs> these days. And then oh. we got a fair way past the snake. And I'm like, you can stop now. I'm happy to jump out now so you can let me out. So um, I jumped out then. But, yeah, between snakes and magpies, oh, I've been swooped and you name it. But I don't care about some big price so much. I just you know, it's just the snakes that um that I'm a little bit a little bit afraid of. So when we had those couple of warm days last week and I was running along my road, I was like, oh, please don't see a snake. Um, but I didn't so um and then the rain didn't well, out cold, so I'm safe. Obviously you're very close to Adam Hamilton as I am and um someone put a picture the other day of um a plover at Mooney Valley, something some random mm. photo I texted him and I said, Oh this brings back the horror. He says, Me too, me mm. too. So what happened was Kate, you know when they used to run a day gallops meeting at Mooney Valley and then there was the trots, so there's a yeah. bit of a gap. And for some stupid reason, Adam and I were dressing our finery and our suits decided to walk a lap of the course proper at Mooney Valley. And he's, and he's about five metres in front of me, and, you know, Adam's suits are about five grand. And he said, look out, look out! And all of a sudden we got dive-bombed by these spur-wing plovers and we yeah. both ended up face-first in the mud. They're aggressive. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. loud. So you've had magpies but not spur-wing plovers, Kate? No, I've actually got plovers. I've got plovers and magpies um, on our plate and I feed the magpies. Like, they like me and they've never swooped me. We've got plovers in the middle of our track and, like, they make the noise but they never swoop. So I've never been too worried but... Um, I put a video up on my Insta a couple of weeks ago because there was the most vicious magpie I've ever encountered. And I turned my phone on and I got it like swooping me. And it swoops cars. It's that vicious. And Adam still to this day gets swooped every time he goes somewhere. Like him and birds, just, he and birds do not mix. Like he's traumatised by them. And he come back one day, um, they were at my parents' house, and he come back with scun knees because he got swooped. <laughs> that, that reminds me, did you ever read the Foot, foot Rock Flats cartoons? They, they made books out of them and there was a, this was a New Zealand cartoon series and they, they had this gigantic Slice of heaven. Yeah, they had this gigantic cat that was on this farm that was so big they called it horse. Yeah. And you know how cats bring the little prizes and drop them at your feet like a mouse? Oh, he bought in a human hang glider that he'd caught. <laughs> <laughs> and the dog was called Dog. Yeah. Well, it was. Foot rock Actually, the met dog. Dave Dobbin, who sang the song Slice. I met him in Invercargill one day. With Robbie Williams? No, that was a different trip. But uh, I'm glad you brought that name up. Name dropping, isn't he? Oh, he's well, a massive name dropper. It was a big thrill. And they ended up taking a will get a run in a minute. New Zealand Cup. Um, um, Kate, uh, how tall are you in centimetres? 158. Ah, well, see, you got something on your side because the the woman that has the, the record for the New York Marathon was 152 centimetres, Margaret Okeo from Kenya, and she won the New York Marathon on two occasions. So oh, I was wow. just thinking of people with smaller statures, and you know I'm a big fan of people with smaller statures, so um, uh, I think it sounds like you're about the right size. Listen, tell us about how people can support to donate because all this is – a, a personal journey for you, but also on a, on a grand scale for that of uh, the EB Foundation and to raise funds for the uh, foundation. And people can be a part of your journey as well uh, in helping and donating. Uh, so where can they go? Um, yep, they can go um, to my Instagram page, Kate Gath. They can go to Gath Racing on Twitter and Instagram. So the link's just in the bio underneath your name. Um, it's unfortunately a US 
um, fundraising page, which is quite annoying when you're donating in Australian dollars because it converts, but it's going to it will go to the Australian arm of the EB um, research and it will give them much needed funds to try and find a cure and help all these people living with this um, you know disease that's um, really awful and um, it's quite you know gut wrenching when you watch videos of them and you know particularly when there's little babies and um, you know and parents don't even know that they're having a child with it until the child's born. And they've got a little mark on them, and then they get diagnosed. So, um, be really great to help all those families. And Eddie Better does a lot for it in the uh, the EB uh, research in the US. So um, he's he's I think he's coming out here and um, doing a couple of things involved with it as well. So um, it's really good. Something's really good to get behind and can really help those less fortunate than us. Mm, yeah, indeed, Eddie and his wife Jill Better, of course. Eddie's lead singer of uh, Pearl Jam. What Dan, am I? Dan's probably met him, Kate. I haven't, yeah, but I want to. They have a, um, they actually have a big ball in the US. On the I was going to be Kate State. <laughs> That's it. Um, but I, it was sort of a bit hard to go to that and get back in time. So I'm missing out on the the big, you know, ball that they have there in New York, which would be absolutely, um, you know, outstanding to go to and Eddie Better and stuff. You know, would be there as well and be, and playing. So next year, next year, and you'd be okay if I went with you, yeah. Oh, yeah, because he doesn't do long-haul flights, Dan. So, yep. All right. Yeah. Put me down. Could you put up with... you with could, Tanya, another blonde Yeah, girl, well, that's so, true. Yeah. Could you put up with Dan in that circumstance, Kate, do you think? Or? Oh, oh, you know, I'd be in business, so it wouldn't matter too much. Be like that... <laughs> be like, if he was with his mates, you know, Robbie Williams and Eddie Vedder, it'd be like, um, who are those two blokes with Dan Malecki? <laughs> Good on you, Kate. You're 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 just a legend. Like I, it's all I'm in awe of people like you, and I get. I think we all are. I can see Simone's face as well. You just do such extraordinary things for such extraordinary reasons, and and you can run too, which is another difference. So, good on you. You know, I like, who who doesn't love a challenge? Hey, life's boring without him. So, um, I was just you know really appreciative that I got given this opportunity, and that I could make some small difference to someone out there. Yeah, we're going to enjoy the ride with you. I don't know as much as you will the uh, the 42 kilometres, but uh, we wish you all the very best of luck, uh, Kate, and look forward to having a chat on your return. Thank you. Kate Kath there, and good luck too with Tough Tilly, who's in the Group 1. Uh, Queen of the Pacific, which is rather fitting for both horse, perhaps, and driver. Uh, Kate Kath in tonight's Group 1 at Melton. Loving their racing, pacing and chasing. Matt Stewart, Dan Malicki and Simone Fisher. Cracking the Codes. We certainly do love our racing, chasing and pacing on Cracking the Codes. And our next guest, who I think he um, thought he might open a Pandora's box and um, didn't expect to see what he would find once he got the ball rolling. Another person who's very, very passionate about racing, about show dogs, about animals in general and people having the rights to own animals and our next guest, John Hutchison, has been involved with showing of dogs and greyhound racing and even dabbled in the other two racing codes with the horses. Um, and his passion and desire to see a little bit of change on the political landscape has seen him take this path of doing something for the industry, feeling that there was a need for something to be done outside of the industries themselves and to take a little bit, bit of control back and perhaps throw it out there to give people the option of when we come to the next election at the end of the of November, that we have these choices that help our future in our racing and um, our careers and our jobs and all the rest of it. So, John Hutchison, good morning and thanks for joining us on Cracking the Codes. And I know there's so much to talk about, but um, primarily you're here to talk about the Companions and Pets Party that you and some other very dedicated people have started up, not started up, not just racing people, but people who love animals in general. And um, good morning to you. Good morning, Simone. How are you? Uh, I'm good. And um, gee, when you opened this Pandora's box up and thought, I'm going to start a political party, I'm sure you didn't expect to find what you did and um, the path it's taken you on, but it's up and running. It's out there on social media now. And Hopefully, we can get this voice for racing participants in particular, that's what we're invested in, but the wider community as well who own pets and horses and cows and sheep. You're absolutely right, Simone. That's why we started the the party. You're right about uh, not really understanding what we're going to take on and the amount of work and the enormity of it, Um, but we got the party registered at the end of September and then the hard work started. But we are passionate about... Uh, all of our animals, whether they be farm animals, whether they be our pets, whether they be um, birds, fishes, uh, doesn't really matter. Um, 
but we're also passionate very much about the racing industry. And we're the only party in Australia that has an, a policy openly supporting all three codes of racing. And we do that because of the enormous amount of expertise that resides within those industries and the, and the professional animal husbandry that those people um, display every day in their work with those animals. And w- there are parties out there who want to... Um, the Greens, for example, the Animal Justice Party, they have a policy to shut down all three codes of racing, and we think that's just not correct. And, John, that leads me to... It's almost a misnomer by name. You know, remember the old saying when we get brought up, you never judge a book by its cover. And But it can work the other way as well. And when you're looking at a, a, a party, uh, which uh, people have got to be really careful about, um, when the word justice is mentioned in, in a title, um, you're naturally thinking uh, that this is for good. It's not always the case. And yeah. one of the parties that exists at the moment could be luring people falsely into believing they're doing something positive for animals across the board. And that Animal Justice Party is trying to get rid of... It's trying to get get rid of animals full stop. You're absolutely right, Dan, and that's, that's the thing that we don't understand. Two of their policies that we really um, find difficult to understand is that they want to abolish the property status of animals. Now, what that means is a lot of people don't understand, but that actually means you will not be able to own an animal. So if you can't own an animal, you can't buy, you can't sell. So our question is, who then looks after that animal? They also want to, um, it's openly in their policy, shut down all three codes of racing. And there's no basis for that. There's no basis in animal welfare for those uh, for that policy because, as I've previously said, um, the amount of expertise that lives in the people who, who look after the horses and the dogs is amazing. I did some calculation um, last week <coughs> If you take the combined participants in the thoroughbred and harness industries, there's over 500,000 years of professional animal experience there. I mean, it's an enormous amount. And in dogs, if you take all show dogs and greyhounds, etc., there's about 750,000 years of combined professional animal husbandry. And so there's no basis to taking those industries out and shutting them down because they operate to the absolute highest levels of integrity, uh, the standards that are imposed by the controlling bodies are first class and they're world class in the yep, standards no that they require from people. And and I also, we, we had a little chat about this with our guests last week, but when I'm, I'm using, say, a, a thoroughbred or a standard breed, when those horses in work, the way that they are treated is actually at a higher level than the greater majority of human beings on the planet. How many humans have the doctors, in this case the vets, come to them? The dentist come to them. The masseuse come to them. Their shoes are fitted and, and uh, updated weekly. Uh, the the farrier comes to them. Every professional comes to the racehorse stables. They have a private trainer. Um, they have a dietitian. They eat beautifully. And they are happy animals, which is quite clearly. Now, the, the human level has to go out and go to all of these places to get things done. Um, surely these animals, these racing animals in particular, I'm going to the racing end, they they actually get looked after better than a domestic pet or companion because you've still got to leave the house with those pets to go and get the help that you need to get, whereas everything comes to these racehorses. So I tend to think that they live like royalty. You're absolutely right, Dan. And not only are they exceptionally well cared for, the other thing is that they're doing what they want to do in life. If you look at a horse in the paddock, it runs when it gets the chance. You can't make a horse run. You can't make a dog run. You can't make them do what they don't want to do. And and this is what happens is once those animals are in, in out in the paddock, they run. So the trainers and the owners are giving them the opportunity to do what they want to do in life. I mean, we saw with Chautauqua, for example, he didn't want to run. He, he was a fabulous racehorse, but he got to the stage where he decided that he just wanted to be um, a bit of a, a couch potato. <laughs> but And so you couldn't make him run. And that's why the, the animals do run is because they are doing what they love to do. And, and when they're so well looked after, I just cannot wrap my head around why we have these groups out there who want to shut the industry down. I think it's just the fact that we live in a democratic society and people feel they have the right to voice an opinion on something and it garners interest and they can convince people of their point of view. And everyone is allowed to have their point of view. But what gets me is, be. is the misinformation that is thrown out there by these people who have an agenda. 
And that's what I think we and John, yourself and Vicky Leonard last week, and I've been following Kick Up for Racing on social media, and they're putting snippets out there of facts. And that's fine if you don't like racing. Um, you think it's cruel for whatever reason, but you have read the facts and you understand from the intrinsic values of racing and what it means, that's okay. But don't go out telling everyone else and brainwashing the public about this and that and that, you know, horses have died in the Melbourne Cup. We understand that. But we even know then, that. That, that has been embellished. I, I mean, I, I remember right. seeing stories, uh, you know, another horse dies at Del Mar. It was the same story recurring once every two weeks. It was the same horse that died eight times. But, you know, and that's what they try to do because most other people that they're trying to suck in are going to believe it because it must be true because it's on social media and on the internet. Yeah. But I just think you look at some of the horses, saying horses, even dogs in pounds and all that type of thing and some of the way ways they're mistreated or neglected um, and people don't have a controlling body to ensure that these animals are well cared for. And that's what I say with the greyhounds. There is no dog in Australia or the world perhaps, that is so governed by an industry and controlled. And, you know, we had stewards out during the week checking that every dog and a kennel inspection. What domestic dog has someone coming around making sure that it's got a clean bed or its yard's been cleaned up or its vet work is up to date? Well, we have to keep these records. And this is the message we have to get out to the public about our level of expectation and what we have to ensure happens with these animals and it's across all racing codes not someone saying you know seven horses died in the melbourne cup well how many horses have died in paddocks through neglect or a broken leg or they've died a horrible death death starvation because of the lack of care yeah and and ignorance and that's that's the the very point simone that we that the companions and pets party is trying to tackle for too long the narrative has been held by these people who have uh, bizarre beliefs and they do spread misinformation and we've decided that uh, as a party we will take back the narrative around presenting the facts to people so that they can make a, the proper judgment on these industries and you're right about the governing bodies there's codes of ethics there's codes of pra- practice that exist in all of these um, these professional organizations we see it through dogs and cats and we see it through poultry associations we see it through greyhound racing victoria harness racing victoria and racing victoria limited all of these have the highest standards and up to now the narrative has been held by these animal extremists who are quite happy to set spread lies and we want to take that narrative back and start to tell the truth. It's a really fine line, though, isn't it? Because you don't want to give them... It's like, I remember at the Meadows, there was someone on the track who could have caused mayhem with the dog with dogs during the race. And the, the whole idea was, don't give them airtime. We don't want to promote what they've done. Let's just shut it down. So there's that fine line between taking that stance and also... Um, letting people know that they're wrong in what they're saying and correcting it. It's a real balancing act because... It, yeah. it, def- it definitely is, Simone. And, and I think this is what's happened in the past, particularly with the governing bodies of the racing codes. They've they've probably tried to remain politically correct and politically neutral. But at the end of the day, if you allow someone to spread lies about your industry without refuting those, then sometimes those lies become fact simply because they've never been disputed. And that's what we're we're trying to change and, and we look at I mean, if you take farming i mean at, at, at an absolute essential industry to our to our communities they want they want to actually um, make it illegal for farmers to farm animals can you believe that i mean so they they actually want to um, shut down all animal farming and turn everyone into vegans and our, our <clears throat> opinion is that we respect people's decision on their dietary needs and all of those sorts of things we want them to respect ours as well so and everyone will be eating vegan cheeseburgers. You know, think about that. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> vegan hamburgers. Uh, think I don't about have that. a problem with that, but it's taking <laughs> away everyone's yeah, right it, to. If it's, if it's their choice, Simone, that's, that's fine. Right. That's exactly right, that, and and that's what it is. It, it, and and sticking to the things you know, I always got brought up with. You only talk about the things you know about, and if you want to know about something, you study for it, and you find out about it. And you, you it, that's all about experience in life, and. You are uh, a better for finding out that information. It's for every walk of life, for that matter. It's advice that everybody should take on board just to learn more, just to be respectful of what uh, happens rather than the, you know, you close your eyes, you close your, your ears uh, a situation. 
with your party, now people that have uh, got into the gist of the conversation here this morning, John, we'll just reiterate the the uh, party that you're uh, with is the Companion and Pets Party. And That's there's correct. an election coming up and you created this um, uh, particular party uh, as uh, in opposition to the Animal Injustice Party. Oh, sorry, did I get that wrong? <laughs> What's it called, Simone? You may have. Well, but I think I think I, we uh, know what people about, are, yeah. are going to look at that, and they're going to be drawn to think, "Oh, well, I'm going to support a uh, a party that you know uh, is looking after the welfare of animals." And, and this is not necessarily the case. And is I've it? done that. Yeah, I, have, and I think a lot of people I, I would have done that. I would have done that up. unknowingly previously, yeah. and I feel embarrassed to say I, I now that I may have done that previously. And, and that, that's the real worry, uh, Dan, is because. We, I think there is a lack of understanding out there. Uh, we're standing candidates in all of the upper house seats, so we do hope that particularly the racing industry of all three codes will support us. But, I mean, you have the situation that even the government of the day, the the information that we have um, is that they are going to be supporting and, pro- and giving preferences to the Animal Justice Party. Now, that absolutely defies belief in me, and, and I'd love to have an opportunity to have uh, the Premier of this state sit opposite here and have a debate on animals and ask why they are supporting a party that wants to take animals out of people's lives uh, when we want to keep animals in people's lives. And you think about the pandemic in the last two years. Some people would not have got through that pandemic without their oh, animals. There's no doubt them. about that. What a, what a s- incredibly uh, important point that you've just brought up there. Obviously, there was a rise in in uh, companionship with pets over the last couple of years. And from a mental uh, wellness perspective, from the human's point of view and the animal's point of view, uh, how, how important that was uh, for so many people uh, indeed. And I haven't heard a lot mentioned about that. Um, uh, for the help, uh, just for the human population. Um, very, very valid point. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you think sometimes, John, and even some people listening are a little bit sceptical and, um, you know, admittedly there would be a lot of people thinking, oh, you know, racing's too big. What would you say to those people that <clears throat> it might not happen, you know, in the next year or two, but maybe in 20, 25 years, um, even, it might even happen sooner. Do you, do you think that people who are a little bit sceptical are saying it'll never happen to us, they won't, the government are too invested in racing, what's your, uh, what, what would you say to those people who, you know, think we're I, invincible? I have heard that argument, um, Simone, people saying we're too important to the government, etc., etc. But if you look um, at, at the way that these extremists operate, they, they take it a little bit by a little bit. Um, so they've, <clears throat> they've started to work on jumps racing, so that's the first part of the thin end of the wedge they talk about taking the whips and the whips are really a uh, they're there as a safety feature for the horses to keep them straightened and make sure they're not there to to you know to uh, to hurt the animal by any stretch so they work on these little bits by bit to try and take them out but we've seen it overseas we've seen it in uh, some states in america where they've uh, they've they've taken greyhound racing out not made it illegal per se but they've stopped betting on it and so, of course, then it becomes an unviable position. And we saw in New South Wales where uh, Mike Baird decided that he would shut down the greyhound industry. And that was, that was nothing to do with is it the right thing to do. It was because there were votes in Parliament for people who would support him. And, and we see there's no greyhound racing in Canberra. That's exactly well. right. And, mm. and is it any surprise if you see who's in power in Canberra? The Greens. The Greens right. hold the, pa- the power up in, Queensland, uh, in uh, ACT. So... If anyone thinks it won't happen, and if you look at our elections, and the we've got a number of people who who get disenchanted with the major parties, and I can understand you know their reasoning behind that, but they then go and support the Greens without really knowing what they're standing for. And you've got to be careful what you wish for in these in this life, because mm. if you if you enjoy your racing, um, then all I can say is that please support the companions and pets because we are there for you. We will absolutely insist on the highest levels of welfare and care for the horse and for the dogs and for all of the other animals. That's our number one priority, but we are there for you, make no mistake. Yeah, and look, I'm an ignorant political person. I really am. I don't like politics. I don't think there's any justice in politics. And I know with your, you know, developing this party and I know you've come across some things that you're just shaking your head at, John, because it's just so wrong, but that's politics and I I really don't spend any time and I'm one of those people that just ticks a box and walks out but I think um, if anyone who is listening is like me just 
put that tick in the box for the Companions and Pets Party because you're doing yourself a favour to ensure that we have got a voice in the political landscape that's you know, going to help us in yeah. the long run, we hope. You're right, Simone. Look, I'm not a political animal either. People might sort of uh, question that given that uh, we've set this party up. But <clears throat> I'm at the stage in my life that I don't want to see animals disappear from our life. I mean, I've had such a fantastic lifetime with the animals that I've shared my life with. Um, I've written two books on my breed of dogs. I'm passionate about <clears throat> greyhounds and I'm passionate about the racing industry. I'm passionate about all animals. I don't want to see a future for uh, children and my my children and their and my grandchildren and their children <coughs> um, go without an animal in their life. It would, what a sad case that would be if they weren't able to enjoy all of the things that an animal brings to your life. And I, Dan, you've heard me before, the whole Melbourne Cup thing drives me insane how it's a, an extra long weekend for the school kids because my daughter has yeah. never sat at school and gone had a Melbourne Cup sweep drawn in the classroom in the morning or has she listened to the race being broadcast on a scratchy PA when they've been outside and it was literally the race that stopped the nation? Whatever you were doing, it stopped. She doesn't experience that. And so it gets my back up already about this time of the year with all the negative press we're receiving for the Melbourne Cup. Um, and people forget that there's how many thousand horse races a year? It's not just well, one race. Also, how many hundreds of thousands of jobs within not not just hands-on within the horse racing with greyhound industries the extension beyond that and all other realms that are supportive and and you know collectively in, involved with the horse racing industries um how do those people uh get the, the the knowledge as they're growing up or the opportunity to understand there are plenty of options within horse racing it doesn't mean you have to be a trainer or a jockey as well and now uh, i mean when i was a kid i was going to the races practicing up the races when i was eight or nine years old now you can't get into any of those venues until you're somewhere between 16 and 18 accompanied by an adult and it's much difficult to get that earlier head start in life if you're not getting wind of some of those things uh in school um you've got to be a late bloomer before you find about extra opportunities and a lot of people fall in love with it at any stage through life sometimes they go through their whole life they pick it up at a certain stage when they get an opportunity to deal with animals or even later in life we know of plenty of examples in all of the racing codes um, where where that happens and um, one thing maybe maybe um, Banjo Patterson uh, was uh, a concrete part of the curriculum because a lot of his work is about horse racing Um, greatest poet in Australia without any shadow of a doubt um, maybe we need to bring that into the kids curriculum because there's a lot of horse racing involved in that and there's a lot of history involved in that as well and it's proper English because he was a journalist <laughs> and, and, and a poet so maybe there's another uh, realm because I know I, I love reading his works they are fantastic so there's another element to it again the inspiration that it provides for so many other people that write books could be authors I mean it gets to a, an extreme point now john but as it does with your love you're an author um and actually on that tell us about the books that you've got oh, i've written two books on our breed i've we've had bichon frise for 45 years and it's can, been a passion of mine and my wife wendy describe what a bichon frise looks a bichon like frise is a little white fluffy little white <laughs> fluffy dog they stand about 12 inches at the at the shoulder or at the uh, in the, that's their maximum height and they're a little powder puff dog all over. But they're an absolutely beautiful breed to live with. And, and that's the, the experience that I've had uh, with dogs right throughout my life. And, I, you know, it, it's, it's a passion when you, you sit and spend two years of your life to write a book and research and all of the things about that breed. Well, it's but, great dedication, yeah, isn't it? It is. Incredible it, dedication. Yeah. Mm. And, and imagine people who don't get the chance to experience an animal in their life. I mean, it, it would just be a really sad situation. But, you know, I, you know I've enjoyed... I've enjoyed a long time with my animals uh, and had greyhounds. Um, I've had people uh, in my family who have uh, been jockey and trainer of racehorses. Um, so, you know, I've had a uh, tradition in, in racing, and I'm not a mad punter by any stretch, uh, so it's not as if I do it because I, you know, enjoy gambling. Um, but, you know, who doesn't like to have a, a bet on the Melbourne Cup? But, you know, it, it's the passion for animals that, that has driven this party, and we just hope that other people out there will share that passion and and support us. Yeah, look, hopefully we'll definitely put it out on Twitter from the station here and myself and look, hopefully all the racing enthusiasts listening will it will prick something in their ears when they hear about the Companions and Pets Party and it's not just small fluffy dogs, it encompasses all animals, whether like you mentioned a goldfish up to a 
a, a cow or whatever you have as pets, camels, whatever it, it is. And John, look, we really appreciate you joining us on Cracking the Codes this morning. Um, the word is getting out and look, we just need it to keep getting out and support your party because you're doing a, a wonderful job. What everyone's probably been saying for years, we need someone to do something and, yes. and you're the man. So an incredible amount of work. I couldn't even begin to imagine what you've done behind the scenes, but um, hopefully people do appreciate it and see the value. Well, thank you, Simone. We've certainly got a lot of passionate people in our party and a lot of passionate candidates standing for us. So thank you very much for for, for this morning. And I think uh, I can talk on behalf of a lot of people, not necessarily everybody, but when you do go to the polling booth and you spend time cogitating, oh, it's it, there's nobody you want to... Uh, preference in in order to uh, put your uh, votes in so in this case for a lot of people it's going to save them many minutes when they know they can just go straight to the companion and pets party and then if enough people end up voting for the companion and pets party it becomes a higher option and viability for some of the bigger parties to use the companion and pets party as one of their high preferences as well so it works in the long run it does thank you very much dan and Matt, good to see you back in the studio with us, um, ducking out for a minute, but that's okay. We like having your company. Yeah, ducked out for about 30, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, Busy day, though. We have got a lot to look forward we have to. spring uh, ticket later on as well. So but that was a terrific interview, an important interview to raise that awareness because there's a few um, tricks that have been thrown out by other parties there, and it's well worth uh, us reiterating uh, to the supporters of uh, not just all the three codes, but of animals in general. And off the back of Vicky Leonard last mm. week with Kick Up, which is sort of a response um, social media group, again, similar to what John's, uh, very, very similar um, categories of uh, response to mounting uh, inaccuracies in yeah. the objections to horse racing as well. So um, we're doing a bit of a cake gath later on today, Dan, aren't we, with our marathon uh, radio yes. session with Spring Ticket. Guys, well done. That was such a fascinating interview with John, of course, and Kate, um, she's a bit of a hero poster material for yeah. me now. I think she's just a superstar, um, as are you two, of course. Um, Thanks. Got any posters available, Simone, that we can put on the wall? Posters of yourself, of your good self. I don't think so. Oh, I don't. Well, it's not can... something I get in the habit of doing, making posters of myself. No, yeah. no, it would seem a bit 37 odd. Thirty-seven-time no... fashions on the field, but now I reckon it's a heavy CV. <laughs> Surprised there's not a race named after you. <laughs> Got to go. Um, as you, as we said, we'll be doing spring ticket throughout the day. Looking forward to that. And with you, the Dan. week. Derby Day, Cup Day, Oaks Day, and then Champions Day. And Simone, you have a lovely week as well. And we'll reconvene next week. We will.